One of the tasks that I have taken on at the house in our homeschooling is to teach history. And I love history. If you know me at all, you know I like history. And so it's been a lot of fun, especially because right now we're in an area, era of history that I really like. Right? We are in an era of kings of England and how the church has grown um, and how the church has been persecuted, which I would say is one of my wheelhouses. It's one of the things I like. And I feel like in the past decades of American Christianity, and when I say past decades, I'm not always talking like, you know, back to the 90s um, as a history guy. When I say past decades, I mean like the past 10 to 20 decades, right? I mean, yeah, I'm talking like 1900s to the 1800s. And I feel like so in the past decades, the church has gone largely unopposed in the U.S. And we've gotten kind of used to that. And many of us have adopted an attitude of, well, we shouldn't have to put up with this kind of stuff. But when we look at church history, and when we think about church history, we see that's not always been the case. Biblical Christianity has rarely found a welcome home on this earth. Last week, we talked about the Reformation. We talked about Martin Luther, and we know all the stuff that Martin Luther, we don't know all of it, we know a lot of the stuff that he dealt with in the church, and now he was opposed. Well, if we jump across the channel there to England, at that same time period, we have Henry VIII. You guys remember Henry VIII, right? Like he had all the wives and stuff. And he is the one that created the Church of England because the Pope wouldn't give him a divorce. Not the most honorable start of a Reformation. But all of the men under him used that to advocate for good biblical Protestant doctrine. Well, Henry VIII dies. His son Edward takes the throne. He's a Protestant. But Edward tragically dies really young, right? And so when he dies, they try and the Protestants try and set up uh, Lady... uh, Jane Grey is the queen, but she's not a tutor. She's not in that line. So the people don't accept her, and you know who comes to the throne, right? Bloody Mary, a Roman Catholic. And she comes in with a vengeance, and she's burning dudes and hanging people and throwing them in jail and all of this scorched earth type stuff, bringing back Catholicism. The church is opposed. And then she dies. And Elizabeth I takes the throne. And Elizabeth allows for some. And she's a Protestant. She allows for some difference in theology, but when she dies, she dies without an heir. And so we get King James, right? He's King James VI of Scotland. It's the start of the Stuart dynasty. He's King James I of England, and he comes down, and and through him we have the King James Bible, and uh, he wasn't super cool to the Puritans either, but uh, he was a Protestant. And when he dies, his son, Charles I, becomes king, and he's the one I kind of want to talk about for a second. So Charles I becomes king, but Charles I, while he's a Protestant, he's married to a Roman Catholic. And he has this one bishop, Bishop William Laud, that's in charge. And Laud puts a lot of like high Anglicanism type things on the church. He persecutes the Puritans. He enforces this high church liturgy. He doesn't like the kind of preaching we do here. He doesn't like expositional preaching. He doesn't like that kind of, that that, uh, like... uh, talking a lot of doctrine-type preaching that we do, and that the Puritans did. And if you spoke out against William Laud, well, as my kids will tell you, it's our favorite part of history lesson, I think, he would cut your ears off. Right? We even found a game online where you answer these questions, and if you answer the questions right, this guy gets his ears cut off. It's kind of a weird game, but (laughs) we played that game, and and they can tell you all about the English Civil War now. But Nonetheless, he would chop ears off of his opponents. He would have their faces branded if you opposed him. And this is the church, right? This is the time period 
when American Christians, when the pilgrims start leaving because of this persecution. Now, I say all this to say, we're not in danger right now of having our ears cut off, I don't think. But we still face opposition, do we not? The church faces opposition. Our ministry faces opposition from the world around us. We face opposition from ministers who have compromised on biblical doctrine all around us. We face opposition from members who have compromised on biblical doctrine and don't want to do what the Bible says. And so as we look this week to Amos and we, and we see his ministry there in the northern kingdom, we are going to see hardship of Amos' ministry and how he stood firm on his calling and what God called him to do and how we can stand firm in our ministry here in Ketchikan. So if you get your copy of God's Word and turn to Amos 7, Amos 7, we will pick back up where we left off last week. And as you're turning there, we remember... And then Amos is, as we talked about with the kids, he's a shepherd, he's a fig farmer, and he's in the southern kingdom, and he's happy, right? He's happy on his farm, and God calls him to go to the northern kingdom to preach. And we've been seeing a lot of his sermons and stuff in the first six chapters, and here we have a bit of a pivot point, right? Things will be different for the rest of the time in Amos, because he starts to get these visions from the Lord. And we read about these visions, and at the end, we, we, Amos ends on a high point. Some of y'all are like, man... Amos has been a lot of like damnation and judgment, and it's true, and it's all God's word, so we're not going to make excuses for it, because the Lord gave it to us, so it is good, and he gave it to us for us to read. But here at the end, we see that he will restore the house of David. But starting in chapter 7, we get the first of these visions, the first three. Chapter 7, starting in verse 1, we read, The Lord God showed me this. He was forming a swarm of locusts at the time of the spring crop first began to sprout after cutting the king's hay. When the locusts finished eating the vegetation of the land, I said, Lord God, please forgive. How will Jacob survive since he is so small? The Lord relented concerning this. It will not happen, he said. The Lord showed me this. The Lord God was calling for judgment by fire. It consumed a great deep and deep and devoured the land. Then I said, Lord God, please stop. How will Jacob survive since he is so small? The Lord relented concerning this. This will not happen either, said the Lord God. He showed me this. The Lord was standing there by a vertical wall with a plumb line in his hand. The Lord asked me, what do you see, Amos? I replied, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, I am setting a plumb line among my people, Israel. I will no longer spare them. Isaac's high places will be deserted, and Israel's sanctuaries will be in ruins. I will rise up against the house of Jeroboam with a sword. Amaziah the priest of Bethel sent word to King Jeroboam of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you right here in the house of Israel. The land cannot endure his words. For Amos said this, Jeroboam will die by the sword, and Israel will certainly go into exile from its homeland. Then Amaziah said to Amos, Go away, you seer. Flee to the land of Judah. Earn your living and give your prophecies there. But do not ever prophesy at Bethel again. For it is the king's sanctuary, 
and a royal temple. So Amos answered Amaziah, I was not a prophet or the son of a prophet. Rather, I was a herdsman, and I took care of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock and said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Now, hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel. Do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. Your wife will be a prostitute in the city. Your sons and daughters will fall by the sword. And your land will be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself will die on pagan soil. And Israel will certainly go into exile from its homeland. This is the word of the Lord. Father God, we thank you for your word. God, we know that every inch, every, every, every letter, every dot, every stroke of your word is good, and it is for our education and for our enlightenment. God, we pray that you would help us to understand your word today. God, I pray that you would guard my mouth in these people's ears and that only your truth would remain in their hearts. Father, have your will in each of our lives today through your perfect word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In this passage, we see a lot, but one of the things we see is an example of a faithful ministry in a hard context. A faithful ministry compassionately prays for the people. A faithful ministry expects to be opposed by the world. And a faithful ministry stands firm on God's word. Now, the first thing we see here in this, in this series of, of, of visions and the switching of gears, if you will, in the book of Amos, the first thing we see is that a faithful ministry compassionately prays for the people. And as we look at, at verses 1 through 9, I, I won't read them, but we just read them, but we see these three visions. And then we find Amos like interceding for the people in this Moses-like fashion, right? Do you remember the story at Sinai and, and Moses has been on the mountain with God and and, he, and God says, you know what? Get out of the way. I'm going to destroy all these people because they've melted all their jewelry and they made a little cow and they're worshiping the cow saying, this is Yahweh. This cow is what took you out of Egypt. God says, I'm going to destroy them. And Moses starts interceding for the people and says, Lord, remember your promise? Remember what you said to Abraham? Remember what you said we were going to, you were going to do? And the Lord relents. And here we see Amos praying for the people and the Lord relents. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean for God to relent? Does it mean God changed his mind? Right? Like we see in the Bible that God is all-knowing, that he is sovereign, that he is directing history. We see that throughout the Scripture. So as we look at this passage, right, we have to think about it in a whole Bible context. It's kind of like, you know, our, our, our minivan, uh, we're pretty cool and uh, in you know technology and stuff, and we have a six D, uh, six disc changer, right? And so we have all these CDs we can listen to, and uh, we have this big CD wallet from like you know 20 years ago. We talk about the 90s, and uh, we have a bunch of Sarah's like college CDs, and one of the ones we have is the uh, soundtrack to Runaway Bride. You guys remember that movie, all right? And so there's a song on there from like the 80s. Uh, it's, I think it may be called like Man Eater or whatever. You know, it's like whoa, here she comes, watch out. Um, well, we were listening to that one day, and the kids were singing along, because the kids hear everything, right? And they were singing, walking around the house, and they said, they were going, whoa, here she comes. She's a man-eating woman. And, uh, you know, of course, we thought it was funny, until Henry couldn't go to sleep, 
because he was thinking about that man-eating woman. <laughs> right? And so when you think about that song, though, we wanna, we want, as we, we read this passage, we just don't want to jump right to, we can change God's mind. Right? Because uh, as we know with that song, that was not actually a woman with like a femur gnawing on it somewhere, right? But it was, a, it was something that helps us understand the character of the woman and what she does. And here as we read this and God's relenting, we have what we call anthropopathic language. In other words, it's describing God in a way that our finite minds can understand. And so it's not that God is like some fickle being that we can pray and change his mind, but we're learning about God through this interaction. And what I believe we see here, and it is explained in terms that make sense to us, is not that God is mutable or that we can change him or that he didn't know that he wasn't going to do this thing and that Amos changed his mind, but it's this, is that God is holy, but his inclination is to give mercy. God is both a holy and a just and a, a God who will judge, but he also is a God of mercy. But his mercy has a limit, right? And we see that here. He has this plumb line, and he holds up this line and he, beside the wall. And despite those first two judgments, he says, look how crooked my people are. He holds his plumb line up, and Amos sees it, and he says, they were initially straight and they were right, but now they are crooked and cannot be fixed and I will not spare them. Judgment is certain. Remember, we have seen throughout this book that sin brings God's judgment in the equation of the world, of, of, of just the way things are. Sin equals God's judgment, and God's going to level their sanctuaries because He is just. But we see here that He does desire mercy, and we see this picture of a minister's heart. Even though Amos is appalled at what they're doing, he still is interceding for them. Right? He, he, he loves them even while he's telling them, look, God's judgment is coming. That's why I'm here. I could have stayed there. I could have been a disobedient to God. I don't enjoy it. But you guys need to repent. He cares about them. You remember Jonah, we see their contemporaries. We see an opposite picture, right? Jonah goes and preaches to Nineveh, and then he sits back like, come on, God, wreck these guys. Destroy them. I want to see some buildings fall. Right? And then he says, I knew you were a God of mercy, and you weren't going to really do it. And God says, why do you have a problem with being merciful to them? What, shouldn't you desire them to repent? And we see that with Amos. He's desiring their repentance. He's saying, how can they endure this, Lord? They're so small. And he's praying for them. It makes me think of the story of the old Scottish minister a couple hundred years ago before central heat and air, whose wife found him on the stone floor in the cold at three in the morning, praying in his nightgown, freezing and shivering. And she says, what are you doing, you knucklehead? Get back in bed. And he said, I don't know where all my people are, so I must intercede for them. I think we need more pastors like that today. And that's what we see in Amos. His heart is that these people would be reconciled to God. And he's warning them about God's judgment, and he's praying for them, praying that God would have mercy on them. And God's justice, His righteous wrath, His repentance, they are all themes the world doesn't want to hear about, but a minister must tell them. And so the second thing we see is that a faithful ministry expects to be opposed by the world. Look with me at verses 10 through 13. And Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent word to King Jeroboam of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you right here in the house of Israel. The land cannot endure all his words. For Amos has said this, 
Jeroboam will die by the sword, and Israel will certainly go into exile from its homeland. Then Amaziah said to Amos, Go away, you seer. Flee to the land of Judah. Earn your living and give your prophecies there. But don't ever prophesy at Bethel again, for it is the king's sanctuary and a royal temple. And so kind of for the first time, I, uh, I, if I remember correctly, in this book, we have this like narrative, we have this story, right? Kind of like the Gospels and stuff. We're seeing not just what the message is, but what's happening, this interaction between this priest and the king and then the priest and Amos. And Amaziah is this allegiance to Jeroboam II, right? And he's tired of this troublemaking priest. He's tired of the... Or, prophet. He's tired of Amos coming and preaching. He's tired of his message, and he starts to conspire with the king. So, you know, that's where I think here, like William Laud and Charles I, right? Like we have the king, and we have the, the main priest guy. And this nominal phony priest, he's more concerned about maintaining status than doing what God commands. Like all selfish people, he starts to maneuver politically, right? He doesn't go and he doesn't argue theology with Amos and say, you're saying this, but according to Deuteronomy, this is what I read here. He just tries to figure out how he can make this guy go away. He goes to Jeroboam and says, hey, king, this guy trash-talked you to the people and we can't endure what he's saying. We don't need this kind of message right now. He's speaking poorly about you and I. And then he goes back to Amaziah, goes back to Amos, and he says, hey, go eat your bread somewhere else. Again, what does that mean? What is he saying there? With this statement, go back to Judah and eat your bread, Amaziah is calling Amos's motives into question. He insinuates that Amos is only there to make a living from the temple. He's prophesying to make a living so that he can eat bread, right? Like the self-serving person assumes that everyone else is self-serving. You remember in this day, the prophets would go to prophet school to learn how to profit and then they would go and profit from their profiting right they'd make their money from their prophesying and we see to a worldly person right like every minister is just a crackpot they're just there to profit from their profiting and a true man of conviction is strange to the world and Amaziah doesn't see Amos as that he doesn't see him as a man of conviction that has left the sheep fields to preach but he's just here to to make a buck And we learn from this, whether you are full-time vocational ministry, a lay minister, or just a lay member, not just a lay member, if you were called to be a lay member, right? If you are faithful to God's instruction, you would better be ready to be opposed by the world and nominal Christians in political fashions. Many a minister has been accused and pressured by the world and a worldly church member to compromise on what they believe. One of my mentors at seminary is a much older pastor now, but when he was a young pastor, he's told the story. Some of you know who he is. Some of you met him a couple weeks ago in Kansas City. He told a story about a deacon that wanted him to do something that was against his convictions. And he tells this story to his, he teaches a class on practical ministry, and he tells this story, and he says that it was just like in It's a Wonderful Life with Jimmy Stewart and Mr. Potter. 
He said, I sat as just a young pastor, scared of my own shadow behind this desk, and this big, grumpy deacon said, son, I've been a deacon in this town for decades, and I'm going to see you run out of it. And he said, with all of his like, little pastoral strength that he could, he said, well, uh, sir, I want to stand with the Bible. And he didn't get run out of the town. I don't remember what happened in the story. But that old man was going to bring everything he had to bear on that young pastor to make him be unfaithful. And we see this story over and over through history. Think Al Mohler when he went to South uh, Southern uh, Seminary and people were shocked to find out that Al actually believed this stuff. He actually believed what the Bible taught and he was going to see it through to the end. One of my professors, a different one at seminary, told us, said, boys, you'd better nail down what you believe from the Bible before you get to the local church because people will try and make you compromise. When you won't marry that deacon's daughter that's living with her boyfriend, they're going to bring that pressure to bear. That's what we see with Amos. They're bringing that political pressure to bear on Amos. Change your message. Get out of here. Go back to Judah. Friend, if you're training for the ministry, you better be prepared to be opposed. Whether you're a deacon or whether you're a pastor. But a faithful ministry stands firm on God's Word. Look with me at verses 14 through 15. Amos answered Amaziah, I was not a prophet or the son of a prophet. Rather, I was a herdsman, and I took care of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock and said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. So Amos responds to Amaziah, and he says, Look, man, I'm not a hired gun. I'm not a temple bum, right? Like, I don't know other contexts, but like in the National Guard, we had these guys that were guard bums. Like, they took every single contract, and they just kind of hung around the armory trying to make money and stuff, right? Like, we called them guard bums, right? He says, I'm not a temple bum. I'm not just here for little scraps of bread, right? I'm called by God. That's what he says. Amos says, I'm not carrying on the family business. I'm not a prophet nor a son of a prophet, right? He says, I was... I had a thriving, I think he still has, a thriving farm back in the southern kingdom. Made me think of a story when I was at seminary and I was uh, 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 an academic advisor and I would meet these guys that were new to seminary and I'd talk to them about, you know, where are you coming from? Like, how did the Lord call you into ministry? And it was was an exciting time. 99.8% of the time, they were great conversations. But I had a conversation with this guy one time and he said, it went something like this. He said, well, my dad's a pastor and I'll probably be a pastor too, and I don't know. I signed up for seminary because what I'm supposed to do, but I really want to go into the business world for a while because I don't think ministry is going to be very challenging. But, you know, I'll, I'll end up at it at some point because it's easy and it's what my family does, so I figure I might as well take a class or two. Well, one, that guy had no idea about ministry, right? But it's made me think of this story where Amos says, I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet. I'm not just joining the family business because it's an easy way to make bread. He said, the Lord has called me to this. I was a herdsman. It's doing fine. Making a living. Got my sycamore tree trigs, sycamore tree figs, and my, my sheep over here, and everything's going great. But God has called me to this ministry, this hard ministry. I was elected to it. As some people say in the Baptist tradition, I was shut up to the ministry where I could do nothing else or to do anything else would be unfaithful to God. 
When you're called to the ministry, you can do no other thing. And that's where Amos finds himself. It's clear to him. And if you here, I know we have several men uh, training for ministry or, or discerning a call to ministry. When you are called into it, it is clear you can do nothing else. And there will be days you wish you could do something else. But as you pray and as you discern and as you cannot sleep, you will know it is clear that God has called me to this. And Amos is like, I must preach. I must preach because God has called me to preach. And then after defending his ministry, he gives uh, Amaziah a word from the Lord. Look at verses 16 and 17. He says, now, after I've defended myself, after I've defended that the Lord has called me to this ministry, now hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel. Do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. Your wife will be a prostitute in a city. Your sons and daughters will fall by the sword. And your land will be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself will die on pagan soil, and Israel will certainly go into exile from its homeland. When Amaziah rejected Amos and his message, in reality, he's rejecting God. Because God is the final authority behind this message. In this passage, by challenging Amos, Amaziah is challenging God, and he's going to suffer because of it. We see this bad news that he received, this horrible sentence that he has gotten from rejecting God's message. And friends, when we too, when we, when we challenge God's word, we challenge God. Now we want to be careful here. A charismatic leader might draw a line from this passage to his authority, right? Like we see people who have manipulated people through the years and said like, well, see there, you don't touch the Lloyd's anointed kind of thing. And that's, friends, that's, that's not a good, a good connection to make. In the Bible, what we see, in this, especially in this Old Testament, is that a prophet receives a word from the Lord and then he relays that word to God's people. And if he's a false prophet, he's killed. In our day, we have a completed canon of Scripture. We have God's Word in sentence form. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, and, and as, as we read in, from Paul in, in 2 Timothy, every line is theopneustos, it is God-spirated. It is God's Word. In other words, I didn't sit around this week waiting for God to give me some direct revelation and then come in here to preach because we have God's Word. His Spirit indwells us and illuminates His Word to us and helps us to understand it. But this, friends, is the message. You can reject me. Indeed, we try, I pray every week that if I say something apart from God's Word, that you do reject it. Because it's not about me. My job is to explain to my best of my ability in the power of the Spirit, God's Word, man can err, but His Word does not. And your job is to have an open Bible and to be reading along and following along with what God's Word has said. Allow God's Word to change your outlook and to obey God's Word. Amos is a story of a people who rejected God's Word and now are being judged because of it. And as we think about these people who rejected what God has said, and we think about ministry. There are three types of people this morning 
that need to hear to be faithful in the ministry. First, the layperson, the church member. You have a ministry. Whether you know it or not, you have a ministry. You are to pray for the church. You are to use your giftings, as we talked about downstairs this morning during church membership. You, everyone has a gift, and, and when you don't use your gift, the church suffers because of it. No one has all the gifts. And so you use your gift here, and you support the ministry. Friends, do you pray for the church? And I don't just mean your friends. I don't just mean that two or three people in the church that you're buddies with. Do you pray for everyone? Do you pray for the leaders? Pray through the directory. Pray through the bulletin. We, it doesn't always change, which is a good thing, but there's a prayer list in the back of the bulletin. You can pray. Pray for the church. Just as Amos is interceding for God's people, you can intercede for God's people. Every one of you has a gift. This local church operates smoothly when members are present and using their gifts for the common good. That means you prioritize being with the body as much as possible. And when you gather, you don't just consume, but you serve. It's alarming the number of people who will regularly complain, friends, regularly complain about the lack of gospel ministry in Ketchikan and yet do not prioritize gathering together or using their gifts. You want to see the gospel advance? You want to see more faithful ministries in Ketchikan? Show up with God's people and use your gift. And with that, check your ego at the door. You should really check your ego all together. But when you gather with God's people, check it at the door. I use this uh, illustration sometimes. You know, 90% of the seminary professors I knew when I was in school are good, godly, humble men. Maybe more than 90%. Nine, we'll go 99%. But every now and then you get that guy, right? Like he's wrote a few books, right? Like he's on a few platforms. He's got like a style. He's got a brand, Right? And he thinks that he walks on water when he doesn't, right? And I, and I often look at those people and I say, you know, it's kind of lame, it's really lame, right? Because no seminary professor walks to the airport and thinks, you know, I'm going to be mobbed by all my fans when I get here, right? right? Like, they're a really big fish in like a tiny little pond, right? And so when I see guys like that, I think, man, that's, that's really lame because most people don't know who your books are. Like in 20 years from now, most people aren't going to know who your books are. And we look at that and we say, yeah, those guys should, should be more humble. And then we show up to a small group and act like that. Right? If those seminary professors are a one-hit wonder who think that they're Elvis, right? Like us showing up to small group is the, the armchair theologian or like the guy that's the Elvis impersonator at Jimmy's Chicken Shack. Right? So if those guys are kind of sad and lame, what are we? Check our egos at the door. A good leader knows when it's time to lead, and they know when it's time to follow. A selfish person uses every opportunity to voice their opinion. They're like the child that wants everyone to play their way. They're unteachable and incorrigible. But the spiritually mature, they show up ready to serve. Where do you need me? Do you need me to wash those dishes? Do you need me to click slides? A faithful ministry in Ketchikan, that's what they want. They want to see their brothers and sisters grow in their faith. 
And they want to see people come to saving faith. And they're not so much worried about if everybody thinks they're the smartest guy or gal in the room. Second, lay leaders, pray for the church. Fulfill your ministry. Support the ministry. The same thing. It's the same thing, but it's just more pressing. So if you're a lay elder, if you're a music director, if you're a small group leader, if you're training to be a deacon, right? All these same elements of pride, but at a more pressing level. A mature Christian uses their gifts. A lay leader has to. Pray. Support the biblical direction of a ministry, even if it goes a different way than you think it should. The skeptical and selfish person hears a statement like that and assume they're being manipulated, right? Like you're just trying to get me to shut up and stand in line. But in reality, the simple fact is that any organization stalls out when we have to argue about nitpicky small things all over the place. I don't like the music or your Bible translation, right? Be able to shelf your ego as well. If it's not a matter of heresy, abuse, or unfaithfulness, be okay with not having it your way. Let's see the ministry go forward here in Ketchikan. Third, vocational ministry. And you say we only got two of those, right? It's like you and Keenan. No, we have a lot more than you think. We have two guys that are looking to go to seminary soon, and there may be more. Pray for the church. Fulfill your ministry. Trust your calling. Never compromise and pour yourself into the ministry now. Pour yourself into the ministry now. If you are called to serve the church full time, pray for the people. Pray for the people, like that Scottish pastor on the floor in the cold. Pray for the people. You must pour yourself into this ministry. And you must prepare to have your heart broken. When I was in seminary my first year, I didn't intend to talk about seminary so much today. But we are talking about ministry, so that makes sense. My first year, though, Ligon Duncan, some of y'all know who that is, Presbyterian guy, uh, Reformed Seminary, he's in, in Mississippi. He came and gave the Spurgeon Lectures, two-day lecture series at Midwestern, and he made this comment. He said, if you're training for the ministry, prepare to have your heart broken. And I thought, well, you know, Ligon, you got to say that for some of these guys, because they grew up in like Awanas and stuff, but like I've literally had the Taliban try and blow me up. I think I'm I'll be okay. And then I got to ministry. And I said, man, this is hard. And I watched things that broke my heart. And somewhere along the way, about two years in, I had to learn about this guy named Chuck Swindoll through a seminar I was taking. And uh, it was interesting to me because he was a Marine and he was an expositor. So I'm like, I like this guy. I'm going to buy his biography. And I was reading his biography and he tells a story about sitting in seminary one day. And this guy comes to chapel and He's talking and he says, hey, if you're training for ministry, prepare to have your heart broken. And Chuck Swindoll said, yeah, I was a Marine, so I don't have to worry about that. And I immediately like, remembered Ligon Duncan. So I don't care who you are. If you're training for ministry, friend, you're going to be opposition, just like Amos, and you are going to have your heart broken. To enter the gospel ministry is to pick up the sword and the shield and to know you're going to be wounded. Heresy, that's easy. Someone denying the divinity of Christ, that's easy stuff. That's lightweight stuff. It's the friendly fire that will crush your heart. 
when the people turn their guns on you over Bible translations or your view of the millennial, it will break your heart. When you see someone who you believe is mature in faith and they consecutively neglect gathering with the body, it will break your heart. When you watch a person slowly unravel and alienate themselves from God's people all while you reach out and pray for them and they eventually eject themselves from God's people, friends, it will break your heart. And you may think, like I did, oh, I won't be like that. I'll just go and I'll teach the Bible and I'll love the people and everything will go well. Friends, our ancient enemy has had 2,000 years, if not more, of crushing guys like me and you. You will have your heart pierced, begin to heal, and have someone else rip the scab off. But like Amos, you continue to advocate for those who do not care for you. You pray for people knowing that they wish you would go away. That is our calling. That is what we do. You must never compromise your biblical calling or conviction. As Jason Allen said, there's no shame of limping into the pulpit each week, only shame and running from it. We have an inerrant, infallible, all-sufficient word from the Lord. We do not compromise. God's Word is why we're here. It's why we love one another. It's how we know how to love one another. It's how we know His commands. Preach, teach, stick to it. Unlike Amaziah, who rejected God's Word, cling to God's Word. In every context, in every culture, friends, God's Word is the church's standard and we do not compromise. Amos waded into the danger and did not compromise his calling. Church, you too must put on your kit, pick up your sword, pick up your shield, and stand firm. Fulfill your calling. In this week's chapter, we learn about the hardship of Amos' ministry. And we learn how we too must stand firm and fulfill our ministry here in Ketchikan. Pray for one another, expect the battle, and stand firm uncompromisingly with God's word. In a moment, we're going to sing a song that's widely misunderstood. This song you probably know, and it, was bro and it broke into the American evangelistic scene in the 1950s due to mass evangelistic meetings, kind of like the Billy Graham Crusades. And people associate this song with decision-based conversion. But I want to argue, friends, that's not how it was intended. That's not how this song was intended. In fact, I even know friends that are Reformed believers who will not sing this song because they think it puts an emphasis on man's ability. But let's talk about this song a little bit as we close here. I have decided to follow Jesus is the name of the song. And after a great revival in Wales, the Welsh Calvinistic Methodist Foreign Mission Society was formed. And they began evangelizing in the 1840s in India. Now, the Welsh Calvinistic Methodists were Calvinists in their theology and Methodists in their practice. And in 1928, they became the Welsh Presbyterian Church. If you don't know anybody who was a part of that denomination, uh, I would argue you do if you know who Martin Lloyd-Jones is. He was a Welsh Calvinistic Methodist. And these missionaries went into a part of India that was known for having brutal headhunters. They opposed the gospel, and people were saved. And one of the men that God saved was named Nuk Singh. I think that's how you say it. 
And this story of Nuck Singh, or maybe even a legend, it's kind of hard to nail down all the facts, but one thing we do know is that he made a local chief angry for becoming a Christian. And he was lined up with his family, his wife and two sons, and bowmen in front of him with bows and arrows. And this chief said, if you do not renounce your faith, I'm going to kill your kids. And he refused. And they shot both of his sons in front of him. He said, if you do not renounce your faith, I'm going to shoot your wife. And they shot his wife. He said, if you do not renounce your faith, we're going to shoot you. And they did. And before he watched his family slaughtered and himself was killed, Nuck Singh was reported to say, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. Even though no one goes with me, I will follow. As one theologian wrote, for Calvinists, it is helpful to know the history and understand that not all music was written in the context of debates about God's role versus man's responsibility. But in this song, the word decided does not have a minimalistic veal, but it is rather a once and for all commitment, a commitment that the author knew would lead to his death. Friends, our takeaway is this. Headhunters in India, Charles I and William Laud, or Jeroboam and Amaziah, are you committed to stand firm on what God has called us to do? We still follow Christ. Christian ministry is hard. I know it's hard. It's not always easy. But being a true follower of Christ is what we are called to do, and we should not think it is weird when we are opposed by the enemy, but we are called to stand firm in God's instruction and keep moving forward, though none go with us. Our Lord suffered. So will his followers.